welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to introduce to you now. Dr. Ken Zweig provides personalized preventative care that caters to individual patient needs. Having worked for 18 years in a variety of medical settings, Dr. Zweig believes the majority of medical problems are caused by poor behavior habits that have accumulated over time. He takes a preventative approach to treatment and helps patients adopt a preventative behavioral mindset before relying on medication that could inadvertently cause other medical problems. Dr. Zweig's focus on sleep disorders and hypertension go hand in hand with his mission to improve patient health through behavior change. He also helps patients improve their overall mental and physical health through a holistic approach to treatment that focuses on nutrition, exercise, and managing stress. Dr. Zweig is an assistant professor at both Georgetown and George Washington University Medical Schools. Dr. Zweig has also served for 15 years at the General Medicine Internal Group PC in Arlington and was on the board for the Health Connect Accountable Care Organization. Dr. Zweig, what an honor it is to welcome you to Balanced Body Radio. Thank you so much for having me, Casey. I really appreciate being here. Totally an honor. We were just talking a little bit about skiing, um, and I was wondering if you had visited uh, my neck of the woods, which is just on the outside of Salt Lake City, and it sounds like you've been here before. I, I have. I love it out there. It's just absolutely a fantastic place to ski. I, I just remember everyone always talking about Alta and how Alta was this place where it's the greatest place to ski, and you look at the map, and you look at the numbers, and you look at the, uh, the slopes, and you think, why? It's, it can't be any better than anywhere else. And then I went there and finally got to experience Alta and, and realized what everybody was talking about. And the snowboarders out there are going to hate me saying this, but it really, really is a phenomenal, probably the best place I, I've ever been skiing. Oh, totally. Yeah. Uh, it, it's really a magical place. One of the ways that we can tell if somebody's a local or um, if somebody is not a local is if they call it Alta or Alta. Um, nope. It's it's weird. That's Locally, right. we all call it Alta. When I, I'm going to fully admit that's probably the wrong way to say it anyway. We just have a weird like <laughs> local draw that's kind of lazy. We also make it a habit on this show to really dissuade people to, to come to Utah because it's getting so busy around here. So tell us a little bit about skiing in Colorado. Oh, well, you know, it, it's hard to choose between the two. I mean, the, they are both so fantastic. I, I'm, Colorado is really my true love. My wife is from there, and it was the first place I ever skied out west. And uh, we go out there probably once or twice a year. We have a ton of friends out there. And so, you know, Colorado is also pretty hard to beat and hard to choose between the two places. I think Utah has better snow, uh, but Colorado probably has better slopes and, and, and options. There's just so many places to go and it's just spectacularly beautiful out there. Uh, so yeah, I really love it. It really is. You mentioned offline Colorado Springs and the memory that I have from Colorado Springs was hanging out with a coworker who wanted to do a hike, uh, in Mon Manitou, which is just right outside. Yeah. And he's like, we're going to do a hike called incline. And I said, well, that's a a depth name. Um, and we pulled up to the parking lot and I'm like, well, where's the trail? And he points and there's this dirt kind of path that goes straight uphill. <laughs> I thought I was going to die. Yes. Have you ever done that one? Uh, I've done it a few times. Oh, I man. love the incline. Man. I've, I've, a lot, I've heard a lot of really good stories about the incline. Uh, <laughs> it's pretty, pretty amazing. A lot of the people from apparently the Olympians from Colorado Springs go up to the incline to do some training. And I guess uh, Paulo Ono used to ride his bike from the Olympic Training Center up to the incline, run the incline in about 18 minutes or so, and then oh. back down and ride the bike down to the Olympic Center. So pretty impressive. That's yeah. amazing. It's funny you mentioned him. He was training at a gym I was working at previous to the 2010 Olympics. And mm -hmm. I, I would not have believed it if somebody would have told me, I, if I hadn't seen this with my own eyes, him loading up a leg press machine, as many plates as you can fit on both sides and on top of the machine and getting underneath the weight and one leg repping, repping that weight one over leg. and over one leg. Yeah. Wow. In the short track, based on how fast they're going, they're pulling three G's in the corner. So they're literally uh -huh. like, three they're, they're like single leg pressing three times their weight it's super right. impressive yeah it is <laughs> that's crazy it is. it's amazing wow yeah, well i want to skip ahead um, and talk about you and i want to talk about a story that you told um in an article that you gave i thought was really kind of interesting the angels live in you <laughs> can you tell us a little <laughs> bit about the angels live in you story Sure. You've really done your homework. That's great. Um, yeah. So, well, uh, when I was a resident, I was taking care of this patient. I was at the um, Veterans Association Hospital in D.C. 
And I had this patient come in who was this uh, older black gentleman who was a local reverend in one of the churches. Uh, he's a very nice guy, but absolutely miserable, was suffering from pain in all his joints, uh, really fatigued, just felt terrible. And uh, looked like he was actually having a, uh, a flare of an autoimmune condition. And uh, so uh, I put him on a course of steroids and I came in the next day to work and I was seeing this crowd outside his room and I had to go and sort of force my way through to see what was going on because all these orderlies and nurses and, uh, uh, you know, residents and students and everyone was standing outside his room. And I got pushed my way in enough to see what was going on. He was standing on his bed giving this incredible sermon with this booming voice, a completely different person than I had seen the day before and was just, you know, had everybody enthralled in what he was saying and hanging on his every word. And as I got closer to him, he pointed to me and he's like, there's my doctor. There's the man. They, he is the guy. And he just was so happy and felt so much better. And he gave me this poem that I kept in my wallet for years called the angels live in you because he was so pleased at how much better he felt. And that was just an amazing feeling. Looking back, I realized that part of it was probably something called a, uh, a steroid mania <laughs> and probably the prednisone gave him a little more energy than it probably should have. But he really uh, just perked up so well and left the hospital feeling so much better. And, and it was just a, it was a great feeling to see him get so much better. Wow. That's incredible. What a, what an interesting story. Um, that must've yeah. been uh, something that really stuck with you. If you, um, you know, made that into a poem and kept it with you. That's really beautiful. Tell me a little bit yeah. about um, growing up and, and deciding to get into the medical profession. Uh, well, okay, yeah, sure. Um, so I'm originally from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So basically, I bleed black and gold. Go Pens. And, go uh, Pens. <laughs> go Pens. That's right. Great. All right. I knew I had the right podcast. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, so it's, uh, it, it's, uh, it's a great city. And I really love it. And, um, uh, you know, if the if the weather was a little bit better, I'd probably still be there today, because it's just a, it's just a beautiful city with a great feel and great people. Um, and, uh, so then I went to university of Michigan, uh, for my undergrad and took a couple years off to work in the business world and did basically chemical sales for about two years and decided that that wasn't really for me. And, uh, so, uh, tried my hand at medicine. Uh, the funny thing about it is, you know, I come from an extremely medical family. My father was a doctor. My uh, brother is a doctor. I have multiple uncles and cousins who are doctors, uh, both male and female. And so it was really sort of set in stone to some degree. I'm, I'm sort of a purebred in that respect, but I really wanted to try something else. So I was determined not to go into medicine for many years. Mm. And I had every intention of going into business. And then when I went out into the business world and gave it a try, I realized, you know, I, I need something more. I, I can't just go out and get up every day just to make a dollar. I need to make a difference. Mm. And so I um, tried, I, I took the MCATs and wanted to see if I could get in. I got into Ohio State Med uh, School of Medicine and the rest is history. And I, I never look back. I'm thrilled with that decision. I'm so happy doing what I do because yeah. I, I just love it every day. Wow. Did, was there ever something you wanted to specialize in or did you want to be more general practice? So uh, that's a great question. Yeah, I um, I wanted to specialize in just about everything. <laughs> Every time I do a rotation, uh, I'd say, yes, I could do this for a living. And then, yes, I could do this for a living. And then, yes, and I, I found myself liking everything. And so rather than do 11 fellowships, uh, I figured, you know, general medicine is, is the right thing for me. So uh, that's where I find myself. And, I, and I, I always say that I have what I call medical ADD because I like everything and I like keeping my hand in everything. And I, I don't think I could focus on just one thing. I, I like not knowing what's behind door number two and, and just seeing a whole swath of different uh, conditions and, and uh, being able to diagnose people. A lot of the specialists, they're already people come to them already with the answer. And I like the puzzle that patients present to me every day. Wow. I love that. What things were um, a little bit surprising to you as you were getting started? You know, did you think that you were you know, going to be able to spend a ton of time with your patients um, versus the kind of medical classical medical system where, you know, doctors typically only get maybe 10 or 15 minutes with a patient? Yeah. Well, you know, so it's hard to know when you, when you're doing training, first of all, you know, you really don't get, unfortunately, a really good sense of what the 
regular outpatient world is really like. Most resident clinics are, uh, you know, you, at university settings. They're usually free clinics. They're not a typical clinic that you would normally work in. So you don't really have a good sense of what it is that you're going to experience. I, I somewhat did because I saw my father doing it and was able to work with him uh, a little bit in high school and see what that was like. But that was, you know, back in the 80s and 90s and, you know, really back before things really turned into a grind. Um, but when I first started, you know, I, I had uh, time with my patients. You know, I fortunately joined a practice where we would get 20 minutes with each patient and uh, get the. And when you also first start, you don't have many patients. So your schedule wasn't full. So I could spend 30, 40 minutes with everybody and get to know them and really, you know, practice the way I'd wanted to practice. Um, and as things got busier, you know, uh, medicine got more difficult. There was a lot of more reporting requirements, a lot more legal requirements and uh, malpractice difficulties. Um, you know, the EMRs came out and, and just everything got a little harder, you know, and I, I think a lot of it has to do with the electronic medical records. Uh, I understand the concept behind it, but I don't think that they were quite ready for prime time when they were put through as a mandatory thing for, for Medicare. So, you know, that really takes a lot of time out of everybody's days, putting the information in and, and using the me medical records. And I, I think that was something that really put a big hindrance on medicine. Interesting. Uh, with that said, they have some. They have a. They have their role, and they have, there's some really wonderful things that come from them. But on a day to day working with them, especially with complicated patients who have multiple problems, they're just not really quite designed well to manage that. Um, and so, because of that, a lot of doctors have gotten burned out. There's been, like I said, more and more requirements that have come on them, and over the last five years or so, especially during COVID, even more so. Large conglomerates have taken over many of the private practices and brought their bureaucracy into play as well on these small practices that used to be able to make their own decisions. And um, that really, that level of control, which is important, um, got taken away from me at my practice. And so uh, so I had to look for something else uh, to go to. And, uh, and I found my current practice, which is a concierge practice. Um, and I I've been thrilled. I, I, I couldn't uh, speak more highly of it. Um, mm. I, I was it was a it was a really hard decision for me to make. I, I, I struggled mightily uh, trying to decide if I should do that. Uh, I was also also offered a, a position at uh, George Washington Hospital to teach uh, and uh, take care of patients there, and so it was sort of you know two ends of the spectrum, and I was just struggling trying to decide. And uh, I, I, I was almost a flip of a coin that, that made me come here. Really, it was just uh, the the that and one of the docs was very persuasive, and so I finally gave my uh, gave this a try, and and really has been absolutely wonderful. Um, it's it's practicing medicine the way I think it should be, in the way I can. I spend time with my patients, I get to know them, um, and you know they really become almost part of your family, and so it, it's it's been very very nice. Oh, that's amazing. We've talked to a few doctors, and this seems to be getting a little bit more popular, this idea of a concierge service. Can you, for somebody who is not familiar with that, can you talk about maybe some of the pros and cons of, you know, the way you practice medicine before more traditionally versus how you practice medicine now inside of this system? Right. Yeah. So, uh, well, first of all, you know, there are, there are two outsides. There was the previous outside of the system where we were still in charge and it was a private practice and we got to manage everything. It was a lot of work, but I enjoyed it. It was still my you know, it was still a practice that we, me and several other docs put together and, and were able to run and manage in the way we wanted to. And it was, it was a lot of work, but it was still, our, we were still in control. And, and that makes a big, big difference in your day to day. Um, and so, you know, while that was going on, I, I still enjoyed what I did. As soon as our practice got taken over by a big uh, hospital conglomerate, all that control was taken away almost immediately. And when that happens, you know now you're not only are you in the grind of seeing patient after patient after patient, but you also don't have any say in how your day goes. You don't have any say in how the offices run. Um, you're, you're effectively um, powerless to make any changes and to uh, you know to help control 
how things are being done and, and they take away a lot of our efficiencies and a lot of our help and support. And it just became too unwieldy. And so even seeing patients every 15 or 20 minutes sounds like it's not that bad. People have gotten more complicated. There's a lot more testing, a lot more medications that can be done. Um, as I said, there's a lot more reporting that you have to do. And so it, it gets a lot more complicated. So 15 to 20 minutes for a patient is not very much time. And you find yourself not really able to address all the problems that should be tr uh, addressed unless they're, you know, 30 years old and healthy and a sprained ankle, uh, you know, if that's the case, it's fine. But if you have somebody who's got high blood pressure and obesity and diabetes, it's almost impossible to cover all the issues that you need to cover in one visit. And so I found myself no longer really practicing medicine. I, I was really just surviving. I was doing everything I could just to get through my day, finish my notes and callbacks and labs and get home by nine or 10 o'clock at night. And it's just, that's just no way to live. There was, I wasn't really practicing or doing what I felt was right for my patients. And so I had to find something else. And so the benefits of where I am now are that, you know, I, I have a half an hour, sometimes an hour, sometimes an hour and a half to see my patients. Um, I uh, have, you know, a, an extraordinary amount of time to address all their problems in one visit, to uh, take care of them. I have time to call them back and uh, I have staff that supports me. They also have time to call and schedule people and call them back. Um, you know, I would say the communication is is basically the key to good medicine and communication takes time. And I just didn't have the time at medical practice. And now I do, I can counsel people. I can talk to them about what they should do. I, I can talk about the, you know, hear about their, their kids and their grandkids. You know, you can really get, create a relationship. Um, I've had a number of people who followed me from my old practice to my new one. And after seeing them for 10 years at my old practice, now I have time to see them. They'll tell me things I never knew. And I said, you, I've been seeing you for 10 years and I never knew that about you. I think that's amazing that I can actually, you know, have these conversations that I can pull out from these patients. So it, it's a much nicer way to practice. Um, it's more relaxed. And like I said, really, it can address all the problems that you want. I can get people in on the same day. I have room so that if they are sick and need to be seen, um, you know, a lot of times people complain that they can't get in for two to three weeks. Well, if you have a, sprain, a sprained or broken ankle or something, that doesn't do you any good here we can take care of that and see them on the same day wow um and wow. so yeah so there's a lot of really nice features about this this practice um and we've done a lot of really great communications that have been born mostly out of covid but we hopefully will plan to keep that up and so we're doing things like town halls where we're doing these zoom meetings with specialists talking about all kinds of different problems it started with covid and now we're moving on to all kinds of things like sleep and heart disease and um you know uh cancer screening uh, uh conferences um you know we're, we're we're able to do a lot more outside of just the regular day-to-day -to, -day to also reach out to our patients and educate them and, and have good communication. So it's really nice. Wow. Yeah. No, yeah. that sounds great. The, the town hall thing sounds amazing. It's cool that you would include that in what you provide. I, I'm sure you can reach so many more people and reach them with right. experts all over the world in certain fields. That must be very empowering for your patients. Oh yeah, it's been it's been great. We've had some really well being in DC in the DC area. You know, we have access to some of the best physicians in the world between NIH and Georgetown and GW, and you know, we have some incredible physicians here. So we've had some yeah really uh, big names in medicine on our town hall, and uh, it's been it's been wonderful. It really uh, is a neat uh, addition. Um, so we're doing that about once a month, and um, yeah, it's it, it's just it, we we have the time to to do the value add, the extra added efforts um, for our patients. And it's been, it's been great. Um, obviously the downside is that we're limited on who we could take. Uh, there is a, a charge for this and that's the only way the model works is to have, a, uh, you know, to have an annual fee that goes along with it. And so unfortunately then we are, are limited in how many people or else, you know, if we just continuously take people and then you end up at the old, at the old model where you're just uh, doing the grind again and not giving people extra benefits. So uh, I'm limited in the, the type of people that we can take. Um, and for, for a fair amount, you know, where we are, um, you know, the people who search for, for uh, a concierge type practice, there's not as much diversity in my patients as I would like, or as I had at the old practice. Mm. So that's the other downside that, I, that from my standpoint, I'd like to see. 
Yeah, gotcha. No, that's so interesting. I, I just thinking about the medical system and thinking about ways that you know we can have win-win-wins in multiple columns: wins for the patient, wins for the doctors. You know that burnout story is just something we've heard so much of. And you're right; it's just increased by so much in two years. I, I don't know how you guys are hanging on through all of this. Um, it, it just yeah. seems like a really great way to address all the things that we identify as, you know, the patients aren't getting care, they're getting way overprescribed, they're not getting educated, and the doctors are just getting really sick of it. They're getting really tired right. of not being yeah. able to serve their patients and, and working too long. That, that's right. Yeah. And, and, and again, you know, not, not only working, I don't mind working hard if I'm working effectively. But mm. that's not what was happening. And we, I wasn't able to work effectively. And, you know, I, I always hated the idea that, you know, the primary care doctor was really the gatekeeper would just re give a referral for this or medication for that. But when you only have 10 or 12 minutes to see somebody, that, that's all you really can do. And so when you have more time to see somebody, I, I don't have to refer them out most of the time. You know, I can, other than doing a procedure that I'm not able to do, the, the knowledge for most conditions I have, and I'm able to manage if I'm given a little more time to talk to the patients about it and, and evaluate. And so I think if you can get a situation where you can let the primary care doctor have more time and, and, uh, and, and get more primary care doctors in, you don't need as many specialists. Sure. Sure. And I think another thing that must be a lot better is something you mentioned a lot, which is time. You're creating more time. Does that also create more time for you to stay up on the latest and greatest and stay educated on, you know, what's going on in the latest research and, the, and, and, you know, improving ways to share things? Uh, yes and no. So yes. So yes, it does give me more time for each patient to go and look something up. And I, sometimes I'll look things up with the patient to show them what I find or say, Hey, you know, I'm not, I don't know that. Let me, let me look it up and see, you know, see what you're talking about and see what this could be. So I do have time for that. At the same time, since I have so many fewer patients, I'm not seeing as much diversity of conditions. So there are, uh, you know, before I was seeing so many different things in one day, you, I had a lot more experience uh, of things that would be presented to me. And now it's more limited. So, so in some ways I, I am able to read more, but read more about fewer conditions. Gotcha. So it, it's, it's a, it's a mixed bag. Gotcha. Okay. This is probably a really good segue. Um, you've mentioned the lack of diversity and the things that you see, and I want to set this up a little bit. I know, I know, you know, the, the model's a little bit different from what you're doing before, but what you're doing today, but in, in your career, like thinking back, even for you know what your father was doing, what he was seeing and treating in the eighties and nineties, what what things changed along the line to now present a lack of diversity in the things that you see? I'm assuming that you know chronic disease was probably not as big of a deal back in the eighties and nineties, or even at the start of your career than it is today. Is that correct? Well, it, it's different. I mean, certainly chronic disease existed. Um, you know, there's plenty of diabetes and high blood pressure back then, but we've, we've changed how we address it. Um, so, uh, you know, what has changed is, is a lot of the treatments that we can do for a lot of the chronic conditions that we see. Uh, and um, so, you know, people are living longer. So there is more chronic disease from that standpoint. Mm. They're, they're living longer with their chronic disease than they were before because they're a lot more aggressive and have a lot more treatment options for for many of the things we see. Um, you know, and, what, and one of the things that HIV used to be a death sentence and now it is also a chronic disease. Um, you know, diabetes, we didn't have much more than insulin. And now we have many, many very effective treatments for, for diabetes. And so complications from diabetes is actually quite, quite rare in people. People who are compliant and, and have insurance, <laughs> so the important caveats. But um, but yeah, diabetes is, is an extremely treatable condition now, and so uh, so we still see mostly the same conditions that we were seeing before. We're just better at treating them. We also have the other thing is it's just interesting is we have a lot more conditions than we had back in the eighties and nineties. Mm. You know, AD, ADHD is everywhere now. It really wasn't a recognized thing before. Um, depression and anxiety is much more prevalent, but we don't know if it's actually much more prevalent because it's 
just more prevalent or because we're recognizing it more. Mm. People are much more, uh, much more uh, ready to talk about it and, and accept treatment for it. Um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of stigma around those that wasn't talked about before, but now people are, are much more uh, willing to talk about it and know that treatments are available. So they're willing to come in for it. So, so there's a lot more conditions that we see. Irritable bowel was something that nobody ever talked about. And I always joke that it's the most common disease inside the beltway here in DC. So, um, <laughs> You know, there's 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 a lot of a lot of conditions that really weren't necessarily recognized or addressed in the past that we see now. Yeah, interesting. I I look at a lot of those, and th- there there must be some type of metabolic component to all of that. It seems like like some of those conditions are you know made worse by our lifestyle, which I know is something that you're big about. Um, you mm-hmm. know, treating treating patients by sharing different lifestyle practices with them that could, you know, generally speaking, improve a lot of those things. Maybe not cure, maybe not completely heal, but should, you know, generally speaking, cause some type of improvement. So I wonder if we could maybe deep dive into a few of the things that you've learned about things that you can share with people to help improve their lifestyles that generally can, can, you know, maybe reduce the amount of prescriptions they're on or maybe improve their um, quality of life. And we can jump in at, at anything that you feel the most passionate about right now. Okay. Yeah, that's great. Um, yeah, no, and I agree with you 100%. You know, it, it's really amazing. You know, I, I always say that if everybody did everything they were supposed to, I'd probably be out of a job. Um, but unfortunately, I, I have job security, I think. So uh, it's not going to happen anytime soon because it's not easy to do the right things. And um, really, the majority of the things I see are probably either societal or personally induced, not intentionally, of course, but, but are caused by how we eat, how we work and the stress that goes with it, how we sleep and all that. And so it really all uh, plays into it. And if we could do everything correctly, very, very, uh, a great deal of chronic disease would probably disappear. Not all of it, but, but a significant portion, probably the majority. So I always say that, you know, after 20 years of practicing medicine, that I've learned that it really comes down to four things that are good, are create good health. And that's eat right, exercise regularly, get plenty of sleep, and don't be stupid, meaning don't don't smoke, don't do drugs, don't drink too much, you know, do do the, the right things on that part on that part. So um, it really is just that simple, but it's not that simple. You know, being able to, to everyone knows those are the four things you should do. Getting yourself to do it is very, very hard. And that's where the uh, that, that's where behavior change, knowing how to address these issues comes into play. Yeah, wow. uh, I love all four of those. I love the name of the last one. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, right. Yeah, but That's it's great. right. It's. I mean, it's. It's very funny. It just came to me one day. And I was like, you know, this is really not hard. I keep saying the same thing to everybody. <laughs> yeah, I love it. That's great. It's really easy to understand. Let's let's maybe right. talk about the first one of of all of the things that you listed. You know, I oscillate on which one I think is the most important and the most you know important to address with somebody. But I, I find more often than not, at least in my experience, that if somebody is willing to address the first one you mentioned, it's a lever that typically pulls the other levers. Um, you know, sometimes again, sometimes people exercise and that gets them to eat better and starts kind of a positive cycle. Sometimes it's sleep, you start there, but for a majority of people from, from what I've seen, if you can get somebody to eat better, you will generally get improvements in all the rest of the things. So I'm wondering what are some of the principles that you like to talk about when it comes to nutrition and eating better? Uh, sure. Yeah. And, and well, uh, and if you don't mind, I'll, I'll just address that from the standpoint that, you know, everybody I talk to thinks that one of those three is more important than the other. Mm. Um, you know, I have a friend who's an ultra marathoner who thinks exercise is the only thing that you need. And, you know, and then, uh, you know, my personal uh, area of great interest is actually sleep. And I think that if you sleep better and get more sleep, because there's, most of people are sleep deprived for one reason or another, if you get more sleep, it's easier to get to eat right. You make better choices when you sleep well and you have more energy to exercise. And so to me, sleep is the the, the foundation of it. Um, it. It's really, I think if you are really good about your diet, you can maybe be a little less, a little more lax on exercise and sleep. If you're really good about sleep, you know, you want, you want all three of them to be in, in, in all three of them are important and they're all three probably equally as important and if one of them is much more interesting to you or you're you're more passionate about one of them and you can do that really well you might be able to uh, lapse a little bit on the other two 
you want to try to do all three as best you can, but you know, where you start is really, I think an individual choice and yeah. where it's going to be easiest to start. So, mm. um, but, uh, but as far as, uh, going with diet, you know, with, with any of the three, my biggest thing is that it doesn't take massive changes. If you try to completely upset your entire lifestyle so that you can be healthier, it's not going to last. You, you can't make massive changes in a few days and expect that to, to stick. So um, going on a huge crash diet is going to last. Maybe it'll last two months or three months if you're really good. But you're eventually going to slip back to your old ways and gain all the weight back and go back to exactly what you were doing before. So it really is much better to make a little change. Small changes that you make every day over 365 days really adds up. So a cookie, a small apple is 100 calories. That's almost 37,000 calories a year if you make that small change and cut back that much one each day. And you're talking about nearly a month's worth of food in that in that respect. So, so you don't have to massively upset your entire lifestyle to make the changes that you want. So I, I always tell people, you want to set your goals low. Make them reasonable. The biggest mistake that everybody makes is they have these grand goals that usually come out around January 1st or 2nd. And they say, this is the year that I'm going to completely change me. And it, they do it for three or four weeks, and then they stop. And it, it, it's very, very common. It's human nature to do that. And what you, what you don't want to do is set the bar high and then get frustrated. It's much better to set the bar low and so low that it's almost impossible not to meet it. And then be happy that you did it. So if you want to say, I'm going to have, you know, one less cookie each day, if I'm having two cookies a day, or even a half, one less bite of cookie, I'm going to leave a bite left each day. And then, you know, a week later, do two bites left. Um, you know, just cut it down by incrementally small amounts that make a difference. Um, that can really help. Five minutes of exercise. I have so many people that say they want to exercise for an hour and then they end up doing nothing. But I say, then don't set it for an hour. Do it for five minutes. Five minutes is better than nothing. And more often than not, they can hit that. They feel good about themselves. And then they're out for five minutes. They realize, eh, I can do seven. Eh, I can do 10. And you, you slowly build that up. And it's a much better way to start if you set the, goal, the goals low and build it up than setting them high and be frustrated. Mm, I love that. I couldn't agree more. Having worked in a gym um, as a nutrition, nutrition coach and a trainer um, for over a decade, you know, we're recording on mid, you know, in mid February. The gym would be back to normal by now. It's been six weeks. Where January second, the place would be packed. All the you know normal members are pissed because they can't sit on their normal machines or whatever. And it's like, just give it a few weeks. It's going to be fine. Right. It'll be back to exactly. normal. You're right. And and right. the small, I think the small goals achieved gives you a small win. That is, again, it's just like you explained, it's going to be more likely that that person's going to want to get another small win in the future. So right. I think that's great. When you look at what most of your patients are consuming as far as nutrition, what do you think would be like, in, in your opinion, what is the biggest offender that you wish, you know, the most people could avoid where possible? Like if you had a magic wand and you could make one type of food or an ingredient or, you know, one thing that you could get rid of that would improve the health of everybody, what do you think that one thing would be? Alcohol. Mm. Easy. Wow. Easy. Yeah. Especially with COVID, uh, alcohol has been a, a huge, uh, been hugely on the rise. And alcohol, there's more and more and more coming out about it. Uh, and and I know this. I'm I'm saying this. I'm not a teetotaler. I like a good beer and a good scotch. Uh, but it, it's it's like anything else. It's in moderation. And I can't begin to tell you how many people have two or three or four drinks every night. Having a couple of drinks on a Friday and Saturday night when you're with friends is great. If you want to have one drink a night, um, you know that's that's probably okay too. It may cause a little bit of problems, but not much. But it, it's so common to see people having you know three or four drinks a night and just not thinking anything of it. But then they tell me that they have high blood pressure and that they're obese and that they can't sleep and that they uh, are depressed. And you know, there's so many things that alcohol goes into, and and we're learning more and more about the harms of alcohol. That really, more than one a night 
has a huge impact on your health, including cancer. This has a very strong impact on cancer and heart disease. The idea that alcohol decreases the risk of heart disease has been completely debunked, but everyone still maintains that uh, mindset about it because they want to, because it gives the go-ahead, gives the okay to have it. And there's so much social norming of alcohol too, um, but it really causes so many problems in people and, and it's a hard one to recognize. Mm. Um, like I said, having it on a Friday or Saturday is fine, but when you have constant exposure, a few drinks a night, every night, I, I just find that it has such an impact on people. Uh, if nothing else, it also just makes you make bad choices. You know, they're much more likely to have a dessert or have a few desserts or eat more if you've had a drink or two. And so uh, alcohol is the number one thing that I, uh, that I try to talk to people about. And I, I might be losing some patients who were considering joining me as <laughs> part of the discussion. But uh, but it is not you don't have to you don't have to give it up entirely. You just want to be reasonable. about it. Mm. Uh, and uh, yeah, so. That's the big one. Yeah, that's great. No, it's probably something that's not talked about enough. I mean, you know, right. we're typically going after sugar or, you know, all kinds of grains, especially processed grains or, you know, vegetable oils, getting into everything, soda, diet soda, whatever, all those chemicals. Um, but that's, again, it's probably not talked about enough and something that we should be talking about more. So I think that's great. It's a great answer. Yeah. Um, yeah. We talked a little bit about exercise. What are some of the guiding principles that you like to give for people as far as exercise goes? Yeah. So, you know, you have to realize that, you know, a lot of my patients come in and they really don't do any of the exercise. You know, there, there's, you know, I have some people who are phenomenal shape who work out an hour every day. And then on the other end, I have people who are absolute, complete, total couch potatoes. And so what I tell people as far as exercise goes is that if you don't like exercise, then don't call it exercise. Movement is the key. Anything is better than nothing. And so if you uh, want to take a walk, you know, so many people will say, well, I've, I've been walking, but, but it's not really exercise. Well, yeah, sure it is. It's, it, abs walking absolutely is exercise. And if that's what you're willing to do, then that's it. They always ask me, what is the best exercise? And my answer is the best exercise is the one that you'll do. Because if somebody tells you that swimming is the best exercise and it's great for all your muscles and all your, your body, well, sure, okay, it's great exercise. But if you don't have a pool nearby or you hate swimming, you're not going to do it. It's not worthwhile. And if you hate exercise in general, then don't call it exercise. Call it movement. Um, you know, call it getting your sweat on, whatever you want to do. You know, just, you know, whatever it takes to get you out uh, doing anything. If you like bocce ball, that counts. You're not sitting and watching TV and eating bonbons. You know, anything that gets you moving in some way, it counts more than doing nothing. So again, it goes into the set the goals low, make it fun as much as possible, make it interesting, do the thing that you like or least dislike to get yourself to do it and realize that when you do that, you're going to feel better. And I always try to take it from a positive light that not, not, you know, a lot of doctors say, if you don't exercise, you're going to die. Well, that doesn't motivate anybody. It just makes them more guilty about not exercising. So I always tell people, if you get out and do it, you do five or 10 minutes outside of walking, you know, anybody can do that just about, you're going to feel better. You're going to feel better about yourself. Your mood's going to be better. You're going to have more energy. I mean, anything helps. And so it, it really, I try to always motivate from a positive standpoint and, mm. and let them know that this is the way that if you do the right thing, your body will reward you. Yeah, no, I love that. I'm curious if you've had the same kind of experience that I have where your understanding of the benefits of exercise kind of changes over time. For me, I always thought it had to be something that, you know, made you into a big, hot, sweaty mess and it had to be extremely difficult. And it was more like a weight control or body fat control kind of thing. And I, I don't think I appreciated how much uh, exercise was really benefiting, you know, mentally, emotionally, my body, I think a little bit more so than people thinking like, the exercise has to be really hard and it's going to make you lose tremendous amounts of weight. Have you, have you evolved also in, in, you know, thinking about the benefits of exercise? Absolutely. Oh my God. I, 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 the way I practice medicine and motivate people now compared to what I was when I came out of medical school, I, I, I'm unrecognizable. <laughs> so I, I take such a much different approach because, you know, we don't, we don't get taught this stuff in medical school. 
Um, and so, yeah, so I, I think the knowledge, one, the knowledge has changed. And I think we now know more so that even just walking absolutely is good for you and counts. You don't have to get your sweat on, which I, I don't know if that was so well recognized 20 years ago. Um, but also, yeah, I, I, you know, I used to be that doctor who said, you need to do 30 minutes a day, every, you know, four days a week of hard exercise and get your heart rate up. Uh, now I'm much more reasonable and realize that, you know, anything, anything counts. And if you're doing more than you were doing, that you got to pat yourself on the back and, and take it as a win and, and be happy about that. And so, yeah, I mean, sure. I, I'd love for everybody to do aerobic exercise and do weights and do stretching every single day. But I realize that that's, I'm going to be wasting a lot of breath and a lot of time trying to get people to do that. So yeah, you know, totally. Totally. Yeah. I was lucky this morning. I was able to get in my morning skate and get trash talked by all my hockey buds. Um, but mm-hmm. I've been busy with clients and, and you know, the famous Utah powder is flying today. <laughs> it's really snowy. Mm-hmm. And so I haven't been able to get out and get my walks outside like I normally would today. And I can tell you, like, it, it feels mentally different. I, I, I don't feel yeah. as good not having the sunshine and seeing the ducks by the lake and like getting that fresh air. It's just, it's so right. different. I think it can't be overstated how important walking is for us. I'm so glad you brought Absolutely. that up. Yeah. 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 No. And once you get in a good habit of doing it, that's the hard thing is creating new habits. Once you get in the habit of doing it, uh, it just, it gets addictive. You know, you just, you, you, you miss it. You know, not everybody, but you, it sounds like you do. I do. I know I have a, a lot of people who just, once, once they get into the habit, they just love it. They feel better. And really it, it can be addictive. Yeah. I couldn't agree more on the addictive part. Um, let's talk about something that is absolutely in your wheelhouse, which is sleep. Tell me how you started to develop an interest in sleep. Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting. You know, I uh, when I first uh, was starting to practice, it sort of evolved over time. I, I start, first uh, starting practice and realized that, boy, the, the majority of things I see are really diabetes and high blood pressure. You know, maybe I should really focus on that as, you know, my area of expertise because that's what I'm seeing. I should be really good at these things. And as I focused on both of those, I was seeing more and more and more evidence coming out about how sleep impacts both of them. And, um, and I started looking to the sleep a little bit more and all of a sudden, uh, you know, I, I, when I started practicing is also about the time when sleep apnea was getting a lot more recognized and all these sleep clinics were showing up and popping up everywhere for in-lab sleep testing. And so it started becoming a hot thing. And, and I just thought that was interesting. And I started looking into it more. And all of a sudden I realized that if I'm focusing on high blood pressure and diabetes, really, I'm probably more focusing on sleep. And that when you talk about sleep and sleep deprivation and what it causes, most of the things I see can be directly correlated to sleep deprivation. It's really fascinating that, you know, if you look up, you can look this up. If you look up by county, the counties in the, in the country that are the most obese, and then look up Separately, counties in the country with most sleep deprivation, the two maps are almost perfectly overlaid. Wow. You, there's a absolute, complete, almost perfect symmetry between the two maps because there's such a strong association between sleep and obesity. And if you do that with diabetes, you get the same map. If you do it with high blood pressure, you get the same map. And there's just, you know, when you're talking about sleep, and I'm talking about less than seven hours a night, your risk of almost everything in life gets worse. So obesity, diabetes, high blood pressure, depression, anxiety, heart disease, strokes, uh, um, cancer, making less money, you know, what, whatever you want, unless it's watching more TV, which most people would say, no, you know, getting more sleep really helps that. And about, uh, you know, you know, depending on where you're looking, as many as 60% of Americans are sleep deprived and it's a real epidemic. It's a real problem. Wow. I think a lot of people just consider sleep as like, okay, my body is turned off. Nothing's going on. I'm just kind of resting, relaxing, whatever. And and everything's just kind of off. And when I wake up, then the light switch gets turned on, everything starts going and moving again. Um, and, and they kind of think of it as, as binary, as far as that goes, were you surprised to learn about how many things are actually happening during sleep? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a fascinating thing. And the more I've read into it, the more fascinating it gets, I think. Um, there's a great book 
by this uh, researcher out of Harvard named Matthew Walker called Why We Sleep. And it's a fantastic read if anybody gets a chance to read it. He's great. And he makes the case. Uh, do you know, are you familiar with that? Yeah, absolutely. His, his content is oh, amazing. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's really, really interesting stuff. And, you know, he makes the case that actually our normal state is actually sleep and that we wake just to take care of the things that we need to take care of so that we can go back to sleep. And that waking is not your normal state, sleeping is. And that you, everyone thinks of sleep as a very passive thing, but it's incredibly, incredibly active and a very important part of our lives. And, you know, your brain is, is continuously active when you sleep. And so many things happen that are so important for our health while it happens. You, you, you know, so many people say, well, you can sleep when you're dead. It's going to happen a lot sooner than you think if you discount sleep as an important <laughs> thing. So um, I always say that we have a limited uh, uh, amount of waking hours in our life. And if you cut out sleep, you're using those hours up too fast. Mm. Well, damn you, Shit's Creek. Damn you, Ted Lasso. Damn you, Formula One documentary <laughs> on Netflix yep. that's amazing, that keeps me up way too late, way too often. Uh, Olympics. Well, the Olympics, uh, Olympics I always, <laughs> always suffer in sleep when the Olympics are on. Absolutely. Yeah. What can people be thinking about as far as, um, you know, maybe let's call it sleep hygiene, the things that people can do to enable them not just to have their eyes closed for longer, but to get good quality sleep. Um, to the point that they're they're you know treating their health with respect through sleep. Great, yeah. yeah. So uh, a couple things you can do is you know first of all it's really important to keep regular sleep and wake times. So including the weekend, you know if you fly to France uh, and you then go to bed when you get there and wake up the next day after eight hours of sleep, you're going to still be tired because you got jet lag. Well, if you go to bed usually at 10 p.m. during the week and then go to bed at 2, p 2 a.m. on the weekend, you basically just crossed four time zones. So even if you get eight hours of sleep on that weekend, you're going to wake up more tired because you're, it's called social jet lag. You're, you've just screwed up your circadian rhythm. And so even though you're getting enough sleep, it's not the good quality sleep and you don't feel as well. And so you want to make sure that you keep regular sleep and wake times because your body is, is, is very regimented. And, and, and if you are good about that habit, you, your body will know it's time to go to bed. Um, and so I always tell people to set an alarm to sleep. We have an alarm that wakes us up in the morning. You should have an alarm that says, hey, it's time to go to bed. And if you have trouble with that or you ignore that alarm, and you're always watching TV or you're on the computer, set a timer on that, you know, have the TV turn off because you set, set a timer on the plug where the TV just automatically turns off. You might have to get up and turn it back on or take the remote and turn it back on. You can do that, but then you, you're taking that extra effort to do that. You have to take the action to stay up rather than uh, allowing yourself to say, hey, all right, I know it's time. I'm going to go upstairs and get, get go to bed. Mm. Um, so that's a, a important thing is, again, you want to make it as, as easy on yourself to do the right things and as hard on yourself to do the wrong thing. Um, the other things is sleep uh, sleep aids like uh, Somonex or Benadryl or, or Ambien, alcohol, any of those things, no, those don't work. They, they, they will help you get to sleep, but they give you a drug-induced sleep. It's not real sleep. It's not the kind of sleep that your body needs. And so you are out, and so you think you're sleeping, but you're not getting the deep stages of the stage three and four and REM sleep that your body really needs. So even though you are sleeping, per se, you're not getting real, adequate, restorative sleep. And so you want to really try to stay away from sleep age as much as possible. Mm. Um, and, uh, and then obviously doing the other right things, uh, exercise, as long as it's not too close to bedtime is wonderful to help you sleep, making sure that bed is comfortable and make sure your room is dark and room is cool. You want it to be, uh, in the mid sixties when you're sleeping. Um, and you know, and if possible, this is a big one is l l leaving pets outside the door. You know, it's hard to close the door on them, but pets are, are a big, big part of sleep, uh, disorders, unfortunately. Wow. So, 
Those are a lot of really great pointers. I really appreciate that. I actually didn't know um, the social jet lag thing. That's that's really curious. I would have never thought yeah. to call it that. And also a great idea that I hadn't thought of, which is put the sleep timer on the TV. James Clear does such a great job in Atomic Habits of, of talking about what you just mentioned, which is you know to, to promote a, a new habit that's good, you want to make it really easy on yourself. And to get rid of a bad habit, you want to make it really hard for yourself. I know yeah. with my lazy ass, like if my TV turned off in the middle, like the thought of like, walking 15 feet to turn it back on. I'm just like, I'll oh, give up and, you know, walk the other 80 feet and just go to bed. <laughs> so that right. would be yeah, exactly. totally you know, you just need a little nudge. Yeah. yeah. You just need a little nudge. And you know, and when you're sitting there watching TV, it's so much easier just to let it play through to the next episode than it is to turn it off and get upstairs and change into your pajamas and brush your teeth. That seems like a lot of work. It's so much easier to sit there, but if the TV turns off, you're like, ah, oh, okay. I'm gonna wow. Do it. You, wow. You know, we all, we all get dumb late at night, and so we make <laughs> bad choices. And so that's the time when you need a little, a little more, uh, a little more help to get you to do the right thing. Mm. I've got evidence that says our barbarian ancestors had to actually get up, walk to the TV, turn a dial to change the channel. Um, what a what a hassle what? that would no. have been. <laughs> that can't be. No, what are you? That must have been hundreds of years ago. Thousands and thousands <laughs> of years ago in our human, of years ago, exactly. human evolution. <laughs> Marcus Aurelius had to exactly. change the channel. Exactly. <laughs> He mentions that in meditations, I believe. Um, right, exactly. <laughs> so we, we've talked a lot about behavior change, and and I know this is a, a huge area of passion for you. What other kind of mm -hmm. behavior um, change techniques do you uh, do you use with your patients that really helps create that lasting change and implement those new habits? Uh, so yeah, there, oh boy, there, there, there's so many. Um, I try to make it patient specific because you know it can't be what I like. You know, I, it's very funny because, I, you know, I that what I, I have an agenda when patients come in. My agenda is to make sure that they're healthy. Okay, that's my agenda. That means nothing to most patients. Healthy is such a nebulous term, and so I, it has to really be on the patient to decide what is important to them. And so I will always say, what What do you like? What are you, do you have enough energy? Do you want to do this because you'll save money? Do you want to do this because you want to be able to pick up your grandkids or because you want to run a race uh, with your son or be able to ski with your daughter or whatever it is? You know, find out what's important to the person and what's motivating them. And that's the most important thing. You need to make it personal. Because my agenda doesn't matter for squat when I'm talking to somebody. Um, it has to be what's important to them. So I always try to, to tease that out and, and then use that against them <laughs> if possible. Wow. Um, and so, and then, and then depending on what they find is important, but what I find is important in trying to create some kind of tools around that that will work. Um, and there's all kinds. There's, you know, there's technology. You can, your phone can be an incredible distraction, but it can also be an incredible tool to help you create new habits if you use it in the right way. Uh, and there's a lot of uh, websites that can help with that. Uh, your calendar, reminders, um, there's all kinds of uh, uh, apps that will help you track your calories or stick to your, stick to your goals, whatever those may be. Um, you know, and, uh, and then uh, I also tell people, whatever your goal is, shout it out to the world, you know, tell others, because if you make that verbal contract with other people, if you tell your wife and your kids and your friends that you want to lose 10 pounds or that you want to run in the, the cherry blossom 10 K or whatever it is, once it gets out there, then you have that pressure, you have their support, and you also have that pressure from others. You've put it out there, and now you know you've got to stand by that, and mm. it makes you a lot more likely to stick by your your um, goals, whatever yeah. they are. Wow. I love that. I, I think those are more really great and practical tips. I think most of us, you know, being on the other side of that, like if somebody came to you and said, Hey, will you support me with this personal goal that I have? Most of us be way more than willing to step up and offer support and, and do whatever yeah. we could. And we maybe sometimes forget that, that we have those options and we can reach out to people and, and, you know, really easily get that support. Uh, this has been right. such a cool conversation with so many practical tips. I do, before we go, want to talk about a little bit of your, about your volunteer work. I understand you've done some volunteer work in Honduras. Is that correct? Oh, yes, sure. Uh, unfortunately, now that, you know, once I started, once I had a daughter, that came to a grinding halt. And I, I hope to get back to that at some point. Uh, but for a number of years, I went with a local mission down to Honduras to multiple different places. And we would go up into the mountains and provide health care 
for these indigenous people who, you know, sometimes never even saw a doctor. And we would in one week take care of as many as 8,000 people wow. uh, with this huge group of doctors and physical therapists and nurses and opticians and dentists. And, you know, we'd get a, just a great group of people to help uh, provide as much care as possible. And uh, it was just a, a fantastic experience. And I, I have to say, I, I always wondered who got more out of the trip, if it was m more for me versus the people, the, the, the local Hondurans, uh, because it was such a, such a wonderful growth experience for me and everybody else who, who uh, was down there to help them. So, um, but yeah, it was, it, it's a fantastic uh, opportunity to be able to do that and to see uh, just this beautiful country that gets such a bad rap and is such a dangerous place right now, but has such beautiful and wonderful people especially when you get out of the big cities it, it's just a, a magical place wow. so it's unfortunate what they're going through right now but it was really amazing to have the opportunity to be able to give them a, a little bit of care uh, when i could yeah that's amazing wow do you have any one like particular story that kind of stands out as something that really kind of changed your life or somebody that you really helped out that way? oh wow uh you know uh, I, I, that's hard for me to say because we don't have, we didn't have any follow up on any of them. You know, we'd see them and I was seeing about a hundred people a day. Um, I, you know, I guess that the, the biggest thing was just the, the children and how fantastic they were and how happy they were. Um, and the best part of it for me was at, at every lunch, we'd get this little boxed lunch that would have some Oreos in it. And rather than eat the Oreos myself, I would give them to the, the local kids and they would flock like, you know, like a thousand birds coming to, to descend upon you. And, you know, just for these, you know, eight Oreos that I had. And it was just so much fun giving them out to the kids. That, that as much as providing care, that, I think that was even more rewarding than anything else I did down there. Wow. So, uh, what a cool really, memory. It's a great experience. Yeah, That's great. I, if I had my wish, like anytime somebody with any affluence would complain about their Wi-Fi signal or something, you know, <laughs> third world, like take a bit of money and go to one of those countries and hang out there for like a week and come back and like shut your mouth and stop complaining about how, how well we have it here when, you know, you can go and serve and, and give back. I think that's just so wonderful and what a cool opportunity and experience for you. And also very cool that you recognize that, you know, who got the most benefit them or you, it's, it's, it's cool to know that it was mutually beneficial for everybody oh, yeah. involved. Yeah, it's, a, it's a wonderful experience. Yeah. Awesome. Well, this has been such an amazing conversation. If you had one thing that you would want the listener to take away from this conversation, to apply into their lives, what would that one thing be? Whatever change you want, make it simple. Set the biggest thing I say to everybody is just set the bar low. You know, be, be go be easy on yourself. We tend to be so hard on ourselves and expect so much from us, and it, it's not reasonable. You know, and so much so often we think we should be capable of so much more, and we may be, but it takes time to get there. You can't just do it overnight. So I, I think that the best thing I'd say to people is, um, you know, be kind to yourself. If you want to make a change, do it, but make it small, make it reasonable, and it, and and if you don't get there, that's okay. Just you know, brush it off the dirt and try again. I love that. I absolutely love that. What an amazing message to share. Dr. Ken Zweig, where would you like people to go to find you and connect with you and your work? So uh, our website is nvafamilypractice.com. That's for my practice site. Uh, and on there, you can find a blog that I write. Uh, and uh, I'm also on LinkedIn. Uh, unfortunately, I don't know the address offhand for that, but uh, you can probably find me if you look up uh, Ken Zweig or L. Kenneth Zweig on LinkedIn. I have my blog there as well. Uh, and uh, hopefully it has a lot of the tips that we talked about. Um, I, I can vouch for that. Your blog is very, very well done. Um, you do a really nice job with it. You're a good writer. So thank you for... Um, I appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. So thank you really much, really so much for, you know, sharing that information and sharing where to go for that. And I highly encourage the listener to go check it out. Like I said, his blog is absolutely amazing. Dr. Ken Zweig, thank you so very much for all of your work. Thank you for the, 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 the passion that you clearly have for what you do. And for, you know, like you said earlier, not just being stagnant for going out and continuing to learn and changing your mind about things and then sharing that message with your patients in a way that comes across very authentic and in in a way that you can really help change people's lives. So thank you so very much for all of that. And thank you for coming on our show today. We really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. This is a lot of fun, Casey. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And uh, thank you for the opportunity. Absolutely. Go Pens.
Joe Pens. That's great. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. All right. right, Well, thank you very much. And this has been another episode of Balanced Body Radio. So thank you again so very much for listening to Boundless Body Radio. I can't thank you, the listener, enough. We are so grateful for you. This year, 2021, was amazing. We got to talk to so many amazing people around the world and got to learn so much from them. And we actually just passed 80,000 downloads worldwide, which I just, when I started this, could not even fathom that we could reach that many people with the message. And hopefully you have gotten a lot out of this, um, as, as have we. Um, As we start the new year, we just wanted to let you know about some of the resources that we offer at Boundless Body LLC. Please go to our website, which is myboundlessbody.com. That's myboundlessbody.com. You will see an option to book a complimentary 30-minute consultation with us so that we can discuss your goals with health and fitness and maybe help you create a plan for the new year. Bethany, my wife, also offers uh, virtual mat Pilates classes, which are absolutely amazing. They're very engaging and also very, very affordable. Those can be done live on Mondays and Fridays or also given out as a recording to do at your own convenience. We also offer training and meal planning services that are also done virtually from the safety of your own home. So if you want to avoid the busyness of a gym, we can help show you how to get really fantastic results at home with a very minimal amount of equipment. We've been doing it now for two years. We've gotten pretty good at it. So we are happy to show you that. Once again, that website is myboundlessbody.com. And if you are enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple. It really helps um, get this passion project out to more people. So cheers to 2022. And thank you again for listening to Boundless Body Radio.